0: Is baptism really necessary? Is baptism really necessary for salvation? Is baptism really necessary from, for salvation from what we learned last night from the wrath of God that is to come? That is the question and many, many people have answers for that question. Many people say that no, baptism is not necessary for salvation. It is nothing more than an outward sign of an inward grace, and therefore it is not necessary. Some people say that it is just a command, like any other command probably should be obeyed, but it is not absolutely necessary to be in good standing. With God. Some people say that it is just a symbol, it is symbolic, but it does not change your status from being lost to being saved. But those are what men have to say as we established last night, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And by virtue of that, all of those men who offer those explanations are subject to the wrath of God that is to come. And so they're not credible sources for the question I'm asking about is it necessary to be baptized, to be saved from the wrath of God. There's only one person that can answer that question for me credibly. And that's God himself. Let's let God be true and every man a liar. And so the question is, what does God say? And that fundamental question, is baptism really necessary for salvation from the wrath of God that is to come? And we're going to study what the scriptures have to say about that. I want to invite all of you to have your Bibles with you. And whether it's electronic or whether it's the hard copy, I want you to make sure that what is said from this pulpit tonight and any time a man sets forth the word of God is indeed just that. We want you to have tonight what we call the spirit of the Bereans, Acts 17, 11. You remember that even the apostle Paul, with all his great background in the scriptures, having been a Pharisee of Pharisees, having been a Jew who advanced beyond many of his contemporaries, having been a spirit-filled apostle of Jesus Christ, all of those credentials, as impressive as they might have been, were not sufficient for the Bereans to establish truth. No, truth was established by one thing. They took the word of God and provided that what Paul said lined up with what they knew to be the word of God, then and only then would they accept what he had to say. And I suggest to you that tonight, you take your word of God and make sure that what I'm saying is indeed that word of God. And if so, then you must accept it, you must believe it, and we must practice it. I want to thank all of you for coming to our gospel meeting here. It's been a pleasure for me to be here. I want to again extend my appreciation to the elders for having me here. You folks have been very hospitable, very encouraging. I thank you for the comments and discussions that we had last night, and even the ones we've had today. I've just had a wonderful time here. Uh, Last night, after the services, our brother Leland took us out to, uh, what was that? Cheddars, that's it. Cheddars. I should sure remember that because I told him that just must be one of those restaurants that everybody takes preachers to. Because I've been to a lot of Cheddars. Now that's a good thing. It's not about. It's not. A, it's not a criticism. But they were surprised when I was able to say I was able to say without looking at the menu, I'd like to have some blackened salmon with some uh, mashed potatoes with brown gravy. They didn't have that. We'll forgive them for that. They had that white gravy stuff and, and, and some green beans, and it was delicious. So thank you for that. And uh, then I was cheated uh, Norma Jenkins, man, I tell you what, that lady can cook. We had a fantastic breakfast this morning. It was really good. I just kept going. You know, you're supposed to have one biscuit. and I said, "Well, let me get another, and let me get a third, and get some more ham, and get some more potatoes." And Gerald had stopped. I just kept going, but it was it was good stuff. <laughs> I'm telling you, if she invites you over for some food, you better you better take her up on it. And then I had the pleasure of being with the McMunds uh, at the uh, Samurai Japanese Steakhouse, and he had asked me before where he wanted where I wanted to go, and. I I kind of tried to play it cool like it didn't really matter. I'd just eat anything. But secretly, I was rooting for the Japanese steakhouse, and I got it. And boy, that was some good stuff. If you hadn't been there, you needed to go. So one thing I know about you, brethren, you folks eat well. That's good. That's good. But we want to talk tonight about is baptism necessary for salvation? Is it really necessary? And the first point I want to make to you is this. Point number one, Jesus taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. Jesus taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. And quite frankly, if we establish that, we can stop the sermon right there. I didn't say I was going to. I said that we could. Jesus taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. Turn over to Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. Is baptism really necessary for salvation from the wrath that is to come? Jesus taught that absolutely it is. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. Mark chapter 16 verses 15 through 16. Here's Jesus talking to the 11 and giving them what is commonly referred to as the great commission and great in terms of how expansive it was If you compare that to Matthew 10 when Jesus told his disciples to only, only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now we've expanded the scope of that great message to everyone. He says to them, verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And I like the fact that the message is so broad and is so universal. Sometimes people tell us that Christianity is like many other religions, a culturally based religion. It is limited by culture. And so maybe it's a Bible belt thing. Maybe it's a Southern United States thing. Maybe it's an American thing. Maybe it's a Western civilization thing. But here is Jesus saying, go into all the world and go to preach the gospel to every creature Who does that leave out (laughs) nobody it's a universal message what he's about to say applies to every person in every land in every country in every language where there are people in the world this message applies and then he says he who believes and is baptized will be saved and will add from the wrath of God to come that's absolutely what the Lord said. And we're going to let God be true and every man a liar. Is baptism necessary? Certainly the Lord himself said yes. And 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus is the one who is delivering us from the wrath that is to come. So he certainly has the credibility to say, you know how you get rid of that? You know how you escape that? You know how you're saved from that? You've got to believe and you must be baptized. That's not hard to understand, folks. It's not hard to understand. It's hard for some people to believe because they've been mistaught. It's hard for some people to believe because they've heard otherwise. It's hard for some people to believe because maybe their mother and their father don't teach that. It's hard for people to believe because maybe their preacher doesn't preach that. But here is the Lord himself who says, now, if you want to be saved from the wrath that is to come, you've got to believe and you must be baptized. We understand that. You can't just do one and not the other and expect to be saved. Very straightforward. Jesus taught that. As we said at the very beginning, that's really all we need to say. If the Lord said that, that's the end of the matter. Who better to know than the one that provides the very sacrifice that allows us to flee and be rescued from and be saved from the wrath that is to come. But let's look at some more. John chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. John the third chapter verses 1 through 8. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Jesus taught that it absolutely is necessary For salvation from the wrath that is to come. John the third chapter verses one through eight. John chapter three verses one through eight. The Bible says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, now listen to this, unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus said very clearly to Nicodemus that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, that doesn't leave much wiggle room, does it not? It's not a suggestion. It's not aspirational. It's not, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be good. It's It's a good thing to think. He said, if you want to even see the kingdom You must be born again. And Nicodemus is just perplexed by this. How how can a person be born again? Birth is a one-time process, right? Well, if you're looking through carnal eyes, perhaps. But the Lord comes and double downs it. No, you must be born of the water and the spirit. And unless you're born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so whatever we're talking about here, it is absolutely essential and fundamental and necessary. And what we're talking about is baptism. That is the birth by water and the Spirit. And the Lord says, in other words, unless you're baptized, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you're baptized, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He doesn't leave any wiggle room. Again, not aspirational, not a suggestion, absolutely necessary, absolute terms. And in fact, it doesn't surprise us then when we look over in a passage like Acts chapter 8, you remember uh, the teaching that was done in Acts chapter 8 of the Ethiopian eunuch. Turn over there verses 35 to 37. It doesn't surprise us when Philip is teaching the, the Ethiopian eunuch and I love the way it says in verse 35 what is being taught. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you of whom does the prophet say of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Let's just stop right there. So here you have Philip who's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch and he's returning from Jerusalem back to his homeland and he's reading from the scriptures and he's trying to figure out, now, is this, who, who's this guy talking about? And Philip comes to him and begins at that very verse to preach to him Jesus. Now that's always said. We we're not given all the details. All we know that what Philip preached on that occasion to that man. The Ethiopian eunuch is preaching Jesus to him. Now, keep that in mind, and let's uh, keep going. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. (laughs) Yes, he was preaching Jesus. That's all it said. Philip preached Jesus from that verse. Where did we get baptism? Where does baptism come into this? What does baptism have to do with Jesus? Has everything to do with Jesus as we read in Mark 16, 15 through 16 and John 3, 1 through 8, that Jesus was consistently teaching you must be baptized to be saved. And so we would expect if that was the teaching of Jesus that when you preach Jesus you're going to preach what he taught. And what he taught is baptism is necessary. And that's why the Ethiopian eunuch understood there was an urgency to this. Why not wait till you get back to Ethiopia? Why not wait till you get back to uh, more familiar territory? He understood that he was lost, and in order to be saved, he had to be baptized. Why? Because that's what Jesus taught, and when you preach Jesus, you preach what he taught. And he taught that baptism is necessary for salvation, and he got it. Basically, he's saying, Why can't I be baptized now? Why can't I be baptized now? And the person who says that is a person who understands it is urgent. It is necessary. When you talk to people and they talk about, well, yeah, I need to get baptized and we're going to have a baptismal service uh, later in the month. That's a person who doesn't understand the necessity of baptism. That's a person who doesn't understand it. You say, why that? Because this man understood he was lost. And the only way to be saved was he had to obey the gospel, which meant he had to be baptized. And you don't put off salvation. You're gambling with your soul when you do that. You don't know when the Lord's coming back. And you don't know when you're going to die. And so the person who says, well, I'm going to get baptized. That's something I'm going to do. And we've scheduled a time. That's a person that doesn't understand biblical baptism. I remember back at Oak Mountain congregation where I'm at now. We had a young man who had been Studying with a Christian lady, and they had been studying about what is necessary to be saved. And uh, he came from a background where he didn't wasn't convinced that baptism was necessary for salvation. But he had been taught by many that baptism was required. And the young lady had asked me if I would just have a class or two with him to kind of reinforce the teaching that had already been done. And so we did this on a Wednesday night. We did it before the service. We had our class and just went through the book of Acts very methodically and looked at the conversion experiences, some of which we're going to look at later this evening. And at the end of that, this young man became convinced of the very thing that the Ethiopian unit was convinced of, and that is he needed to be baptized to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And so it just so happened on that particular Wednesday that the regular preacher there, Bob Hutto, uh, was not there and so I was walking this young man through what was going to happen and telling him about the fact that we'd have some opening announcements and we'd have an opening prayer and we'd have some songs and, and we'd have an invitation. And then at the end of the invitation was his opportunity to come forward and declare that he wanted to be baptized into Christ for salvation from the wrath that is to come. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, no, I, I, you didn't get something that I got. Those people in Acts, when they became convicted of the need to be baptized, they did it then. He said, I don't want to wait past your announcements and your songs and your prayers. I want to be baptized now. And so we opened up that Wednesday night Bible study with what? With a baptism. See, he got it. He got it like the Ethiopian eunuch got it. We don't have time to wait. This is urgent. Why? Because it's necessary for salvation. So Jesus taught. That baptism is necessary for salvation. Let me give you a second point. Second point is this: the Holy Spirit teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. The Holy Spirit of God teaches us that baptism is necessary for salvation. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. 1 Peter the third chapter, verse 21. Is baptism really necessary? Well, the Holy Spirit teaches us that it is. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. 1 Peter the third chapter and verse 21. The Bible says this. There is also an antitype. I'm reading from the New King James Version. There is also an antitype which now saves us. So maybe you don't know what an antitype is, but whatever it is, the Bible says very plainly that it saves us. And so let's see if the scripture will give us some more insight into what this thing is that saves us. Because whatever it is, one thing we know, it absolutely saves us from the wrath that is to come. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. There's your answer. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Very clear. Very clear. Baptism saves us. Use the old King James. Baptism doth now save us. You can't get any plainer than that. I remember we had a study in Memphis going back where we were studying with a young man and he also had been mistaught about salvation. And at one point we were presenting scriptures like this to him and we put up 1 Peter three twenty one, baptism saves us. Now anybody else who says otherwise, including some of the people who were near and dear to his heart and had raised him, they were on one side and God was on another side. And we just asked him to make a choice. You're going to go with loved ones, you're going to go with God. And praise be to God that he went with God's instruction on that, that baptism does save us. The Holy Spirit teaches that. And I say that, why? Because this is not just the words of Peter. We understand that all scripture is inspired of God. It's God breathed. It's not just what Peter wanted to say, but God demanded that that be said. So when we read verses like 1 Peter 321, that is the Holy Spirit speaking. That's the Holy Spirit teaching. That's the Holy Spirit instructing. The Holy Spirit says we must be baptized. Is baptism necessary? The Holy Spirit says yes, but there's more. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians the 12, verses 12 through 13. Is baptism necessary for salvation from the wrath that is to come? The Holy Spirit teaches us yes, baptism is absolutely necessary for salvation from the wrath that is to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians the 12th chapter, verses 12 through 13. The Bible says this, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Now listen to this, verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So he talks about this one body, not a plurality of bodies, not a multiplicity of bodies. He says there's one body, and he says, you know what? All of us, we, Paul includes himself, he says all of us, we all got into this body one way, one way. And that's through baptism now if we all got into this body one way through baptism what do we say about the person who has not been baptized well one thing we know they're not in the body because paul just told us we all all inclusive all christians got into the body through the mechanism of baptism now god's no respecter of persons god shows no partiality He's not allowing some people to get in the body one way and other people to get in the body another way. No, Paul says every single one of us who are in that body, you know how we got there? We got there through baptism. Now somebody's saying, well, wait a minute now. What is that body? What is that body? I I agree with you that there's only one of it. And I agree with you that the mechanism to get into it was baptism but I don't know what that body is. Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Turn over there. Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 22 through 23. Once we know what that is, I think we're going to come away with something. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 22 through 23. The Bible says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now listen to this. Which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all what was that one body in first Corinthians chapter 12 verses 12 through 13 the one body that Paul said we all were baptized into right here Ephesians says that that body is the church there's one church And we all, Paul said, we all got into that one church, the church belonging to Jesus Christ, his church, his body. We all got into that one way, and that's through baptism. So we ask the question, what if we have a sincerely religious person who has not been baptized? Are they in the body? No. No, they're not. And we don't say that because we're hurting anybody's feelings or trying to be mean-spirited. We're simply reading what the Word of God says. Paul said, we all got into that one body. We all got into that one church one way. And if you want to get into that body, if I want to get into that body, if we all want to get into that body, we've got to do it the same way the Apostle Paul and all those brethren he was talking about did, and that's through baptism. Baptism. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says, let God be true and every man a liar. So the scriptures teach that we must be baptized, but let's read some more. Galatians chapter three, verses 26 to 28. Is baptism really necessary for salvation from the wrath that is to come? Jesus taught that baptism was necessary for salvation and the Holy Spirit teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation. Galatians chapter three, verses 26 to 28. Galatians the third chapter, verses 26 to 28. The Bible says this, for you, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir's according to the promise. We're told that we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then there's more commentary on that. How do I become a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus? He said, for many of us have been baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. That's how I become a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus. I gotta be baptized into Christ, and I put on Christ. So if I ask somebody if you have put on Christ, and the person tells me that they have not been baptized in a biblical way. Have they been put into Christ? Uh, they believe Christ, they say. They worship Christ, they say, but they have not been baptized into Christ. Again, have they put on Christ? Galatians 3:26, 28 says no. Now again, we're not trying to be mean, we're not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, we're just reading the text text says if you want to put on Christ, you have to be baptized into Christ. If you haven't been baptized into Christ, you can't possibly put on Christ. Sounds a lot like what we said in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. You want to be in the body of Christ, you have to be baptized into Christ. Is baptism really necessary for salvation from the wrath that is to come? The Holy Spirit teaches us that yes, it is required. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Colossians the second chapter. Verses 11 through 12. Is baptism really necessary for salvation? Jesus taught that it was necessary for salvation, and the Holy Spirit teaches us that it's necessary for salvation. Colossians, the second chapter, verses 11 through 12. Colossians, the second chapter, verses 11 through 12. The Bible says, It's in him, Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now here is a critical point, that that for baptism to work, it requires the faith of the one whom is being baptized. He says that we're buried with him in baptism and then we're raised with him through what? Faith in the working of God. It's kind of interesting. Sometimes you you talk to people about baptism and one of their objections is that they feel like men are doing too much work to accomplish their salvation. Oh, that's a work. That's something men are doing. That's something that men are doing to achieve salvation. And here is Paul by inspiration. In other words, the Holy Spirit saying, you know who's doing the work in baptism? God is doing the work in baptism. And it's the one who's being baptized that simply has enough scent to believe in what God is doing to him. That when God says, I am cleansing you of your sins with my son's blood, you believe that. And notice this, that baptism was necessary to put off the sins of the flesh. Somebody says that I have been saved from the sins of the flesh. I'm no longer plagued by the sins of the flesh. Have you been baptized? No, then you haven't put off the sins of the body of the flesh. Why? Because this verse says baptism is the means whereby you do that. Somebody says, I've been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Have you been baptized? No. Then you haven't been raised to walk with Christ in newness of life. Why? Because this passage says that you got to be baptized to do that. Very simple. Very straightforward. We're not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. We're just looking at passages that clearly show that the Holy Spirit teaches that we must be baptized to be saved. So we've established, is baptism necessary? Jesus taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. We've established that, is baptism necessary for salvation? Yes, the Holy Spirit teaches that we must be baptized to be saved. But let me give you a third point. The third point is this. The apostles taught that a man must be baptized in order to be saved. The apostles taught that baptism is necessary for salvation. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, We're on Pentecost, the first gospel message recorded in the scriptures, and uh, let's hear what Peter had to say beginning with verse 36. To this Jewish audience, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom He's been talking about, this Jesus whom He's been preaching about, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promises to you and your children and to all who are far off as many as the lord our god will call and we've read this passage over and over again we've heard this passage taught over and over again we've heard this passage preached over and over again but but have you thought for a second what if after they heard the message from peter and they're cut to the heart they are convinced they believe that they have taken with lawless hands And they have killed the Messiah, the redeemed, the holy one, the anointed one. And they're overcome with grief and despair. That's what that cry is. Men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? We believe that we have killed the Messiah. Is there any help for us? Is there anything we can do about this? How do we save ourselves from the wrath that is to come? What if the answer had been this? There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You killed the son of God. There's no repentance. There's no confession. You don't have the availing blood of Jesus Christ. You will go to the wrath that is to come. What if that had been the message? We sometimes just assume, well, this is just obvious. But he could have said, there's nothing you can do about this. You have committed one of the most atrocious crimes against God that can be committed because you took his very son, the one he sent to redeem Israel, spiritualism that is. And you put him to death. But Peter didn't say that. Peter gave a message of hope. Peter gave a message of grace. Peter gave a message of mercy. That's why I don't understand why people think, oh, you people teach baptism, y'all don't believe in grace, and you don't believe in mercy, you don't believe in... Do you not understand that what was said in Acts 2.38 is a message of grace and mercy and hope? Absolutely! Because what Peter is saying, there's something you can do about that heinous sin in your life. There's something you can do to get the stain of that off your soul. And it's repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. That is grace, brothers and sisters. That is grace, ladies and gentlemen. That there was something that could be done about the terrible things they had done. And if they were baptized into Christ after having repented, then the Lord was going to wash away their sins. That's what the apostles taught. That baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, I want you to look over in Acts chapter 15. You remember in Acts chapter 15, we open up in Antioch. And there have been some of what we call the Judaizing teachers that have come down to disturb the brethren there, suggesting that a man had to be circumcised under the old law in order to be saved. In other words, uh, for those who were Gentiles, there was the gospel plus. (laughs) It wasn't enough to have the gospel. There are some other things you had to do as a Gentile that were different from the Jews. And so this dispute between Peter and Barnabas who were upholding the truth and the Judaizing teachers who were teaching error got to the point where they decided that we're going to go up to Jerusalem and we're going to discuss this matter uh, with the apostles and the elders. And I want to begin in verse 6 of Acts chapter 15. Now the apostles... And elders came together to consider this matter, this question, is there a gospel plus? For the Gentiles. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about Cornelius. We'll talk about that shortly. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, listen to this. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. We shall be saved in the same manner as they. The question is, is there any difference in the plan of salvation for Jews and the plan of salvation for Gentiles? Does God make a distinction? And Peter makes some powerful points. Don't you remember, folks? God chose me to speak to Cornelius. And when I spoke to that household while I was speaking, I saw the Spirit of God descend upon these people the same way that it descended upon us in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. God didn't make any distinction between them. And he says, I'm going to tell you, We're all saved by faith, and we're all saved in the same manner. Now, think about that. Acts chapter 2, when the men said, men and brethren, what shall we do? He gave a recipe for salvation. He said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And now he's telling them, look. There is only one way to be saved. It's the same way for the Jew as it is for the Gentile. Well, by implication, how does the Gentile get saved? The same way Jews got saved in Acts chapter 2, you repent and you be baptized for their mission of sins. Now, let me ask you, if we take Jews and we take Gentiles and they're all saved the same way and baptism is a necessary component of that salvation, who does that leave out? Who does that leave out? Nobody. <laughs> Peter makes the point we're all saved in the same manner. So we can't do this business and say, well, you people, you, you folks, y'all are saved by, by baptism, but, but, but I'm saved by faith alone. You people are saved by baptism, but I'm just gonna take some confession along. You people are saved by baptism. No, 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 no. Peter says we're all saved in the same manner. There is one plan of salvation. There is one way to be saved from the wrath that is to come. And ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, baptism is a necessary part of that one way to be saved. That's clear from the scriptures. But let me give you a fourth point and the lesson to be yours. Not only did Jesus teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, not only does the Holy Spirit teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, not only did the apostles teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. But the very conversion experiences that we read about in the pages of divine inspiration also teach and bear testimony to this fact that baptism is essential and necessary for salvation. Let's look at some. We said we're going to get to this. Look at Acts chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 1. Cornelius the Gentile, the centurion. I think we can learn some things about the necessity of baptism from the example of the conversion of Cornelius. Acts chapter 10. We're going to begin verses 1 through 6. Acts the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 6. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. Listen to this description. A devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, about three o'clock, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. When he answered him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? Now, I want you to listen what the angel has to say to Cornelius. So he said to him, your prayers and your arms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa. Send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. Now listen to this. He will tell you what you must do. What you must do. But this is, this is a man who's devout. This is, this is a man who believes in God. This is a man that fears God, and not only fears God for himself, he exercises leadership in his household to lead others to likewise fear the God whom he fears, This is one who is generous to a fault. He gives alms to the people generously. If you were to read this description to just the general public or general religious people and ask them this question, is this a description of a man who's saved? Oh, many religious people would say, yes, he's saved. He believes. He's a devout man. He's serious about his religion. He's leading his household in the fear of God. He prays to God always. He gives alms, generous to the people. Surely that man is saved. And yet we have the angel saying, You need to get Peter, and Peter will tell you what you must do, not what you should do, what would be nice to do, which is aspirational to do. He said, You must do. And so he's putting an emphasis on the message of Peter. What's Peter going to say? Well, let's jump down, if you will. And look at verse 24. And this is after uh, Cornelius is waiting for Peter to come. And Peter's making his way. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them. And had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation? But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? Listen to what Cornelius said. So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting till this hour. And at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. What did the angel say? He'll tell you the things you must do. What does Cornelius say in response to Peter saying, hey, why do you want me here? He said, we're here to hear the things God has commanded you to tell us. What are those things? Let's jump down in the story to verse 44 of Acts chapter 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, listen to this, Can anyone forbid water? that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. The angel said, Peter will tell you the things that you must do. Cornelius understood that and told Peter, we're here to hear what God has commanded you to tell us to do. And right here, what does Peter tell them to do? They need to be baptized. But it gets better. It gets better. Because you remember when Peter went back to Jerusalem, And the word had spread about this phenomenal thing that had happened with Cornelius and his household and his friends. And you would think that the Jewish brethren were just jumping for joy that God's grace has been extended to the Gentiles. But you you had some naysayers, you had some haters. And they wanted to get after Peter. So you know good and well, no Jewish man is supposed to be eating with Gentiles. (laughs) That's all they're thinking. They're not thinking about what the wonderful display of God's power and the wonderful display of God's grace. They're just thinking about, hey, you over there eating with Gentiles. And you know, Peter does a great job of defending himself. It's all about God. He just says, he said, hold up, hold up, okay, you wanna criticize me. Let me walk you through the sequence of events. First of all, this man, Cornelius, had an angel from God who came and told him to come get me and to hear what he had to do. But furthermore, I was in the house and I was uh, in, a, in a trance and I had a vision where basically unclean animals were laid before me and I was told to rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unclean. And the Lord said, what God is clean, you must not call common. And as he thought about that, he realized later that that was God telling him that you're not to call any man, any Gentile, unclean. But furthermore, you may remember when Cornelius had sent the entourage to Peter's house, the Holy Spirit told Peter, you go with these men and you doubt nothing. And then caps it off by saying, you know what? I went there and I was in that house and God rained down the Holy Spirit on them the same way he rained it down on us on Pentecost. God, 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 what's the point? If God accepts these people, how dare I stand in the way of God's deliverance? And they got that point. It's praise be to God for that. But in the middle of that, in the middle of that, I want you to read something I think is very telling on this point of whether baptism is necessary for salvation. In Acts chapter 11, look at verses 13 through 14. This is, again, Peter recounting the interaction between the angel and Cornelius. And he told us how he had seen an angel, this Cornelius had seen an angel, standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. And listen to this. Who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's, let's think about that. So the angel tells Cornelius that Peter is going to tell him words by which he and his household will be saved. Now I'm not an English teacher and I don't have an English degree and I don't teach English, but I do remember that will is future tense. It's looking to something that has not happened yet. So if the angel said that you're going to hear words from Peter, that he's going to tell you words by which you and your household will be saved, that means that the moment that he's hearing those words, is he saved? No. No. He's lost. But Kevin, he's a believer. He's lost. But Kevin, he was devout. He's lost. But Kevin, he feared God with all of his household. He's lost. But Kevin, he gave alms generously to the people. He's lost. But Kevin, he prayed always. He's lost. Folks, I want to suggest to you, you won't find a finer description of a person than Acts chapter 10, the first couple of verses. And this is what's amazing when you really think about it. Who gave that description? Oh, it's Luke. Luke's the author of Acts. Who's the real author of Acts? That means that's the Holy Spirit's description of a man. And with all of that being devout and all that fearing the Lord and all that praying and all that giving alms, he was absolutely lost. And so folks who say that they can get to heaven and they can be in the Lord's church, They can be saved without baptism. My question is, are you any better than the description the Holy Spirit gives in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 2? I haven't met too many people that surpass that description. And if that man had to be baptized to be saved, we all have to be baptized to be saved. You see that, folks? The words by which you and your household will be saved, and he commanded them to be baptized. You're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. None of us is. We can't get to heaven simply because we believe. Oh, it's got to be an obedient faith that leads you to be baptized into Christ. And again, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but you just can't do it outside of baptism. But if that didn't do it for you, I've got one more. One more. If I don't get you with this one, I don't know what to do. Look at Acts chapter nine. This is probably one of my favorite conversion stories. The conversion of Saul. (laughs) Oh, just a powerful message. This is a man that absolutely was seeking to destroy the Lord's church. We're introduced to him in Acts 7 as one who was consenting to the death of Stephen, the martyr. They laid, the the people who were stoning Stephen laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 says that Saul was wrecking havoc of the church. It was so bad, Christians moved away from Jerusalem. This man was a terror to the Lord's church. And he was going to Damascus. He had some letters. He's going to throw some more Christians into prison. But he met the Lord along the way, he had a conversation with the Lord, and became convinced that Jesus was the risen Savior. He was and is the Son of God. And it's interesting that after that encounter, the Bible describes him in Acts chapter 9 and verse 9. And the men who journeyed with him, that's Paul, stood or Saul at that point, stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground. And when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days, listen to this, he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. He was fasting. Put that back in your mind. He was fasting for three days. Verse 10, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord sent a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. Listen to this, for behold, he is praying. So we have a man that was fasting. We have a man that was praying. We have a man that clearly believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the risen Savior. He's encountered him, no question about that. And yet when you go over in Acts chapter 22, which is Paul recounting his conversion, I want you to listen very carefully to what is said about the interaction between Ananias and this man named Saul. And if you will, let's look at starting verse 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now this says, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. Wait a minute, Ananias, wait, (laughs) time out. We just read that this man believed that Jesus was the son of God. No question about it. He believed. He was the Lord. He encountered him. He talked to him. He saw him. One of the reasons why he could be an apostle, he saw the risen Savior. He believes. But not only that, when God was talking to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 11, God says he is praying. So we have a man who believes And we have a man who's praying, and we read in Acts 9, 9, we have a man who's fasting. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. We would go into the religious world and say, hey, I got somebody here. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying, and he's fasting. Is this man saved? And a lot of people say, absolutely he is. Except for Ananias. (laughs) Ananias says, arise while you're waiting, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You've got to be baptized to do that. In other words, when Ananias is saying, you're lost, why are you sitting there in that lost condition? Get up and get baptized. But he doesn't have any sins. He's saved. No, he's not. No, he's not, despite the fact that he was believing, despite the fact that he had been praying, and despite the fact that he'd been pr- uh, fasting. He was still lost until he was baptized into Jesus Christ. You ever heard of the sinner's prayer? I guess it didn't work for Saul because he had to be baptized in order to be saved. Friends, the conversion experiences the Bible teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. I didn't ask you to understand all the nuances of that. I didn't ask you to be able to explain all the nuances of that. But what the Lord demands you do is you believe what he said. And the Lord says you must be baptized to be saved. It really comes down to this people. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. People don't believe. We got too many Naamans. We got too many. You remember Naaman, right? Here's Naaman's got this leprosy, and he goes to the man of God, and he just wants to be healed, and he's told to dip in the river Jordan seven times. And Naaman gets angry, (laughs) he gets upset. Because he's got these preconceived ideas, these preconceived notions. He's already worked out in his mind how this is all going to go down. The man of God's going to come out. He's going to wave his hand over the place. He's going to call upon the name of God. Great spectacle. And he'll be healed. And that's not what happened. The man of God didn't even come out of his house. <laughs> he just sends his servant and says, you go dip in the River Jordan seven times. The name was hot. He was mad. Angry. And Fortunately, he had some servants to talk some sense into him and no, wait a minute. You came all the way over here. If this man had asked you to do something great, you would have done it. Remember how desperate you were to get rid of this leprosy? And he just said very simply, dip in the river Jordan seven times and be healed. Why not do it and be cleansed? And something about that appeal got through all that anger and all that uh, uh, just wrath, if you will. And he did exactly what the man of God said to do. Quit thinking about the waters. Remember, he said, so man, we got better waters back home (laughs) Jordan, not anything. They said, just do what he says and believe. And when he went down into the river Jordan seven times, came up out, they said that flesh, not only was it cleansed, it was almost like a newborn baby. (laughs) That's correct. That's the the power of God's cleansing. Friends, it wasn't about the water. Nothing magical in those waters of Jordan. But it was all about your faith in the operation of God. Much in the same way, we say it's not about the water. There's nothing special about the water back there. And there better be some water back there, folks. If not, we're going to find you some. I was preaching somewhere. I was talking about water back then. And brethren were like, no, 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 no. We don't have any water. Well, if we don't have water, we're going to find some water. But it's not magical water. But it's about faith. Do you believe what God says? God says when you go down into that watery grave of baptism, the blood of my son cleanses you of all of your sins. And when you come up out of that water of baptism, I will add you to my church. I'm the only one that has the right to do it, the sovereign right to put you in my church. That's what God says. And the question for you is, do I believe that? And if you're here tonight and you haven't been baptized into Christ, the question is baptism necessary for salvation? Jesus taught that it was. The Holy Spirit teaches that it was. The apostles taught that it is. And the conversion experiences of the Bible teach that it is. So allow me to channel some Ananias. What are you waiting for? Get baptized tonight. Why are you waiting? You know that you need to be baptized. You know that it's necessary to be in the Lord's church. You know that it's necessary to be saved from the wrath that is to come. We talked about that terrible wrath. So my question is: why do you continue to sit there being lost when the water is right there? What would the Ethiopian eunuch tell you? What would Ananias tell you? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And so we ask if we have anyone in this audience who has not been baptized into Christ, will you make that commitment tonight? Will you make your soul right with God? And I'll tell you, every single person here who's baptized can tell you about their conversion experience. and can tell you that feeling. When they came up out of the water, when I came up out of the water, it's the greatest feeling you'll ever feel. All the burden of sin is lifted. You're now a fit vessel to do the work of God and his kingdom which is to seek and save that which is lost. And folks, let me tell you, we've got some wonderful Christians here and we've got a lot of abilities, a lot of talents, but we don't have enough. The harvest is plentiful, but the labor are a few. We need more help. We need you. Get in the game. Get baptized tonight and help us win some more souls for Jesus Christ. If anyone said that invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.